Hello everyone, welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. By some estimates, up to 95% of our cognitive processes are subconscious, meaning we have no executive control over them. While some of this activity is systemic, like keeping our hearts pumping and eyes blinking, some of it is much higher level, even extending to activities that we assume we actually do control. So where's the line, and what does it say about our humanity? Today we'll explore automated cognition. And so this automated cognition, I, I think I have to change it to cognitive automaticity, because in <laughs> it, it started out as cognitive automation, and I had to change that because it turns out that that is actually a concept that's being used where they're using AI to handle non-routine tasks in businesses in order to emulate human thinking. So already the language is sort of being encroached upon by technology and so we're having to adjust so, our so terms. So say, say your phrase again. This is yours. So I think what we're going to be calling ours is cognitive automaticity, which is a mouthful. But, <laughs> but AI already came in and, and claimed cognitive automation, so we can't use it. <laughs> I like the nuance. That's, yeah. So um, what do we mean when we talk about cognitive automaticity then? Now that I've on the fly changed the term. <laughs> well, the term automaticity would imply um, an approach, which is not the same as as a process. So, you're you're to me talking really on the fly here. <laughs> it, uh, you're talking about how we approach the idea of the automated uh, in relation to cognitive uh, process, whereas the other would be more narrowly just on the process itself. Yeah, yeah, and I think that we might benefit from taking the broader approach because there's been um, a lot more psychological work done on looking at the process itself. So we have a little bit more of a scientific basis to look at the whole idea, but I don't want to wreck your whole your whole game plan. So we'll obviously oh, well, it's, <laughs> we'll obviously use the whole thing. If this were a football game, it's, it's a, which I know nothing about it, I'm done. I give up. <laughs> yeah, so I I think that um you know, when when doing the research, some of the things that popped out were uh, one was a, a study by John Bard in 1994, um, which was based on a decade of research. And he came up with four characteristics that, that accompany automatic behavior, right? Mm. So number one is awareness. Um, a person might not be aware that there, there's something happening. Intentionality. A person may not intentionally initiate a behavior. Efficiency, you know, they're, they'll become more efficient. They won't need as much um, thought power to make something happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then controllability. Somebody might not be able to control the automatic behavior. And so those are kind of his four criteria, but you don't even need all four criteria to have an automatic behavior. And he um, uses stereotype activation as a, an example where 
it uses only two of the four criteria, but it still counts as an automatic behavior. We, so, we, so we, we can kind of start there looking at the four the, the four characteristics and discuss them a little bit. Yeah, let's. So the first one is awareness. And that's that's the perhaps the big one because yeah. that's what consciousness is all about. I mean, we're still trying to define what consciousness means. We all talk about con- neurocognitivists, everyone talks about consciousness. And 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 it's we're still at about the level uh, it seems uh, of of defining a planet as a wandering body before the the ast- astronomical community in the, the mid you know 2012 11 whenever it was redefined planet much more we haven't redefined consciousness yeah yeah because we don't really we don't have the stuff to do it yet yeah like recently um i forget the who the philosopher and who the scientist was but they had a bet um, going back Probably a quarter generous. of a century or something, <laughs> you know, going back a quarter of a century, something like that, where they said, you know, the the scientist, the neuroscientist said, you know, by this, by 2023, we'll know what causes consciousness in the brain. And the philosopher said, no, nah, no, you won't. <laughs> and they got to 2023 and the scientist said, well, no, we don't. You win. <laughs> and so, yeah, this is an ongoing thing. Yeah. Um so let's talk about formation a little bit, I guess, before we jump into the, okay. the characteristics. Right. Um, is, is this idea of cognitive automation or automaticity a recent philosophical topic? Did, did philosophers really think about the, the amount of activity that we do automatically without thinking before recent times? I don't. I, I can adequately say I don't think so. I, I, you know, I, when you're talking about the idea of Thinking, of course, that goes way back. Mm-hmm. Cognitive ergo sum, all. But when you're talking about the automation of it, that that just automatically puts it right up within. I would, I would say, reasonably within the late 19th century, yeah, on, onward. And even then, um, you're talking about automating a, a machine. You know, an automaton, that's an ancient, well, an old concept, something that is made to do the things that you intended to do. Mm-hmm. So there were robots of a, of a kind back before we would think of the word robot being used. Um, but the, the cognitive part paired with it, I, I think we're getting up toward, oh, even the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah, I think when that when Turing, that Turing's work, really. Right. I think that, you know, and, I, and interestingly enough, I think the first piece that I could find of work that sort of highlighted it was uh, a little poem. And we've talked about it before, I think, on the show, but um, it's the centipede's problem, right? Mm. Where, and that was 1923, where, you know, it's just this little poem that where a uh, Little, a bug says to a centipede, hey, how do you walk? And the centipede starts thinking about it and all of a sudden can't walk anymore. Says, <laughs> oh, well, shoot, I actually don't know how I do it, you know? <laughs> and you go, it's interesting that, you you know, there's not much in formal philosophy 
you know, you, you'd think back Aristotle or Plato would be saying, how do my feet walk without me? You know, <laughs> that, that they, one of these guys would have thought, started talking about it. But Well, may, and maybe they, well, first, we, we know that what we have is still rather fragmentary. Right. So they yeah. may well have. I, I'm st I'm still waiting for the stories about Jesus having cheese and wine out on a uh, on a hillside talking about uh, fruit and and the joy of fruit with with his disciples. You know that all of these things. <laughs> yeah, we only have little snapshots so, into into history. But and that itself is, is 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 even in. I'm being what's the reverse of meta? I mean, <laughs> micro meta is is we think that we know things because we encounter them in a very uh, narrow context. Uh, so you'll, you'll run into a study, and that study appeals to you. you know, oh, okay. Or this, this, this amount of the population thinks X, Y, or Z, and statistically that, that's supposed to work because of the kind of slice that's been taken. But really, for every one person who thinks this, there'd be 10,000 people who, who think something else. And so you, you, you mustn't be so sure. Mm. And so what you just said points to that. Now I got us way off track. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's a great point, which is that we only have anybody in history, right? Even going back just a few years, if, if somebody's not around, and even if they are around to, to recount a, mm -hmm. a particular event, memories fade, they change. Things that go on. If if you're not experiencing something in the moment, you, the knowledge is a priori, right? And, and and becoming aware of it. So I, I have to. So this in the 1600s, we're talking Shakespeare time as well. That's when the word automaton becomes a word, um, and that's not the same thing as automation, but it's but it's very close. And and so the idea that. Uh, um, Something that acts of itself or by itself. But even then, that's a cluttered definition because it doesn't act by itself or of itself because it has been built to do a certain action. Yeah. This reminds me of our discussion on Pandora, right? Was Pandora really a woman or was she just this machine built like by the gods for deception in order to release a vengeance on mankind? Uh, yes. And why do we, why do we insist that uh, David Chalmers uh, and uh, Talus and a few of the very current philosophers uh, go at this whole idea that we've talked about too of, of, of giving uh, gendered, gendered pronouns to processes. Hmm. So we call it Alexa. Why? Because we want a servant. We want a female servant. We want that female voice, and therefore it's a she. Not nonsense. None of it. It's 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 all the, the cloak and dagger mist veil that we dangle over this this stuff that is really pretty much just algorithmically based. Right. Yeah, so, so, so in our question, is it a recent philosophical topic? As always, the answer is kind of, we don't know. Maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe philosophers did talk about it. If they do, one of two things happened. Either it didn't get documented or you and I do not have an encyclopedic knowledge uh, right, of philosophy right. and therefore we are unaware. To, 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 to my awareness of philosophy from the former teaching level, um, no, 
which is not an, which is not an exhaustive answer. But we do know that it was talked about when, from uh, yeah, approached in the, the early twentieth century, but really coming into its own with the Turing test and such. Yeah. So, what causes a cognitive process to become automated? We were just having an interesting discussion, you and I, before starting to record, uh, about your aesthetic theory or approach to practice makes perfect. Hmm. I think that's extremely poignant in this question. Because if we do something enough, it becomes automatic. We have made it a habit or habituated it, and and we of necessity do that in order to survive and, and, and move through a day. We, we, we just do things. Sometimes, I don't know, I wake up in the morning, I go down, I open the windows in the summertime, I put on the, the water for, for tea or, or coffee, feed the cats. That, that's a habit, but it's also like I've I know I'm I'm thinking about it. I must be thinking about it, but I'm just sort of yawning, moving through. This is what we do. Now, if it were a raging thunderstorm, I know that I wouldn't start opening the windows. But otherwise, it's just oh, another day. Right. So that's kind of an automated behavior. Um, even even into doing art, there are things that you've practiced them enough. So you 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 put your palette together, or you, you consciously choose paper. You consciously choose the colors, or you choose the medium that you want the medium that you want to work in. But once you get there, then you're studying a photograph, or you're studying a, something right in front of you, uh, phenomenologically, and you're beginning to render it. and And that's where it becomes a strange mix of the intentional and the automated. But I think we I think we relegate certain things just to automated because that's what we do them all the time. Yeah, you know I think that from what I've found, the the way that processes become automated is through you have to learn them, um, you have to become familiar with them, and then you have to repeat them, right? Mm -hmm. And so the one that and I think that there are there are pros and cons to this, you know, this automation, this automaticity. That that are should be highlighted, right? Because um, the good part of it is that it lowers your cognitive load, right? So now you have time to pay attention to other things, like driving, right? When you first start driving, you're thinking about every step. Oh, are my hands at ten and two? Yeah. Am I applying the right pressure to the gas and brake pedal to avoid jerking around? You know. Are there any other drivers coming? Yep. So uh, almost all of your attention is consumed with driving. You can't be eating eating French fries and talking to your friend <laughs> and doing other stuff. But after a few years, you get to a point where you can. Whether or not you should is another story. Yeah, you but you can. On those French fries, and you yeah, and that. I know that this has happened to me, right? Where um, I will, I'll drive through a light, and all of a sudden, I'll have this horrifying feeling where I go, I don't know if that light was green or red. And so it, I, I think to myself, it must have been green because otherwise you wouldn't have done it, right? Right. <laughs> but that, but that's, that's the rationale, right? Is it must have been green or I wouldn't have done it. But that's not a real rationale, right? Because 
it all depends on where I'm taking the environmental cues from. If the environmental cue is that my eye saw a green light, but just didn't feel the need to relay that information to my higher cognitive levels because it's automated, it knows that green means go, then that is in some ways okay. But if the environmental cue that told me it was okay to drive through the light was that the car in front of me drove through the light, that could be a very bad scenario because that car could already be running a red light and I could just be following through it and then cause an accident. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that's what causes the the sort of horrified reflection of going through a light and not realizing that you couldn't tell somebody whether it was red or green or yellow is you go, well, even though everything turned out all right, I don't know where I got the information to tell me that it was all right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the same thing goes on. The discussion you and I were having before the show was talking about the creative process. And, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine who was struggling with it some, you know, and he's saying, you never seem to struggle with it. And, and honestly, that's true. Like, I really <laughs> don't struggle to, to have creative um, insight or, or issues. I, I work pretty fast and, and things tend to... Um, tend to flow pretty well. And, uh, you know, like you said, you and I have talked about it before, but it's, I think it's knowing how to tame this automation, right? This, this idea of cognitive automation is, yeah. is sort of like a bucking bronco there where, you know, if you, if you completely tame it and you have this thing broken and you're just, Everything's automated, you know, practice makes perfect. You've done your 10,000 hours, you know exactly how to do it. And you just, you don't need to put any thought into it and you just, you just go and do it. Um, you'll make bad art. <laughs> I'll say, right? Like you could be the most talented guitar player or pick your instrument. Um, you could be, you could be the best in the world at it. You will make boring music. And I, I can think of examples of this in my head. Bands made up of the most technically proficient musicians I've ever heard. That make boring music, right? Mm -hmm. Because everything is so automated that they know exactly what they're going to do and it all sounds. And there's no spontaneity. Right. And no you cannot, no matter how many computer programmers will deny this with me, I, I'm stubborn about this. You cannot automate spontaneity. You, you can't, cannot automate the in intentionality, which is one of the four that you were just talking about before, of, of, of consciously saying, I'm breaking a rule. I'm going to break a rule because I want to see what happens. Yeah. And, and, and what happens usually makes something really powerful, whether it's ink spreading out on paper in a different way or song that, that you've created. Uh, the, the, the total automation makes for dullness. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, you know, nobody wants to listen or, you know, take an art that looks like it was done by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, right? If if you don't seem to have any sense of what you're doing, that will come out of the artwork. Mm -hmm. But like you said, knowing the rules and then there's two ways you can approach it. And this is what follows with time in my mind, right? Is that I, I've always worked pretty well, but I continue to work better as I go because at the beginning, you know, I automated the basic functions of music, right? I learned the basics of each instrument to the point where it's automatic. But then I didn't, I don't practice in a, in a systematized way because I don't want those ruts, those things to, to continue through all the music. 
So what I have to do is I have to look at it and say, all right, I'm going to break some major rules. And in the early part, it was sort of trial and error. Like, well, can I break this rule and make a good song? Yes. Or no, now I have to go back to the drawing board. So after experimenting with some of that, now I've reached the point where it's less trial and error. I, I know ahead of time, I, I can hear a piece of music in my head or I can be figuring it out as I'm writing it and I can go, you know what? It would be really cool to break this rule here <sighs> because I know it's going to work, you know? And so that's, I think that that's part of the creative thing. You know, that's not, that's not automated. It's no. not automated to, to know what you're going to, you have to think about it and yep. it's going to be unique to the kind of music that you've written. And as a song's developing, it's going to change which rules you break or how you break them, you know, or how many of them you break, when you break, but you, it has to be thought through and it's, it has to be context dependent. And this is the, and this is not solely anchored or located in, 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 the artistic creative process. And I think this is where it becomes applicable to things like industry because the, the whole, well, Talis, uh, who often writes in philosophy now, uh, had recently a, a very, a, a, almost a diatribe that seemed a bit uncharacteristic in some ways, but um, about we we're thinking about the wrong things when we talk about artificial intelligence as um, as even possible. What we're calling intelligence is not intelligence in his view, but mostly because you don't have intelligence without experience, and machines, no matter what happens, cannot experience. That's, that's the position he's taking. Hmm. Well, experience is what you're talking about as an artist, as a, as a musician, um, as a painter, but it's experience in a craftsperson. It's experience in running a, a company and, and having had enough things happen that you can anticipate what needs to happen next, but still be nimble in not giving the same response to one person as you might to another, depending on the situation. But part of, but that's experience. Yeah, uh, and an experience can't be. Uh, I don't think experience. Well, perhaps it can be, but it oughtn't to be um, hammered into an automated uh, process, even within ourselves. If I had one experience, if I had ten experiences, and all those experiences teach me that I never ever should trust X, Y, or Z, then I've become overgeneralized, and I've become unaware of the nuances of the things that are around me. Yeah, it's an interesting take on artificial intelligence because um, you start splitting hairs, but I think it is kind of important to say, you know, what is an experience? Because mm -hmm. if, if you're thinking about it in artificial intelligence as, oh, okay, well, apply this to a scenario. Did it work? No. Yes, whatever. And then you're, you're just taking, you know, statistical trends and trying to distill down what the correct thing is to use in a certain scenario. Um, I think that's automation. And I think that that's exactly what leads to, um, you know, to go back to art, right? You're, you're very technically proficient musicians that make boring music, right? Because an artist, right, isn't going to look at statistical trends and try to find out what works and just use that. They're doing almost the opposite, right? I'm, I know 
I have access to the information, both in theory about what works in a song and in practice what works in a song. And now I'm looking at those things and saying, how can I not do these things and still make a, a, a good song? You know, in the interest of creating something that's new and different that, that by breaking the rules causes a, a shift in perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that, yeah, is that something artificial intelligence will ever be able to do? It's, you know, it's hard to I, say. And I'm, I'm, it's hard to say, but I'm finding myself, uh, one of the reasons I'm grateful we went to this topic is, is that it has caused me to try to take a fresh think on artificial intelligence because my thinking about it has been, of course, heavily influenced by science fiction over decades. And that can get almost tropish and, and automated in its own way. And you have to, and, the, and then all of the recent warnings that, and we've talked about this early in a different episode about um, essentially the creators of the, who are attempting to create artificial intelligence saying, uh, no, stop, don't tell us, tell us, shackle our hands because we, we, we can't shackle ourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But, but then here comes the, the people who are suggesting that, no, nah, it's not going to happen. Um, certainly what we're calling artificial intelligence is shaking up everything from the creative world of movies and, and acting, which is a foundational thing, uh, uh, across the board, taking over jobs, taking over the, the, and, and yielding a, a product that can't possibly be uh, equal to or superior to human creativity. But I, I'm even going to a definition of uh, George Lawton in uh, techtarget.com. Uh, Cognitive automation describes diverse ways of combining artificial intelligence and process automation capabilities to improve business outcomes. It represents a spectrum of approaches that improve how automation can capture data, automate decision-making, and scale automation. <laughs> starts to sound uh, <laughs> self-referential yeah. there, but, but if you're talking about ways that artificial intelligence and, and, and process, automating a process can make your business better, I think you're automatically, automatically throwing out the possibility of what you were just describing, which is, which is the creative, uh, impetus to trying something fresh. You, you can't automate trying something fresh. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and if we think about it, if we go back to our four mm -hmm. uh, characteristics of, of automate, awareness. So decreasing awareness, uh, decreased intentionality increased efficiency and and decreased controllability what do those four things do to your humanity essentially right if you if you're less aware less intentional mm -hmm. more efficient and less in control then you are becoming an automaton. You are becoming an automaton. The, the process is forcing that into, and, and, and we've had unions and, and workers from the beginning of the industrial revolution, not unions, that, that took a while, um, telling us that very thing. The, the, the first impetus of a corporation at some particular point or a company is to reduce the humanity 
of the individuals working there in, in order to increase profit and not distribute it equally across the, the spectrum, but increase the profit for the two or three people in charge or the shareholders and the rest of the people can go jump. Yeah, where I've really seen on a firsthand basis an ability to combat this is through um, continual improvement systems. Mm. When I when I took over, um, there was our, our continual improvement system was sort of stuck in this rut where you know, it's it seemed as if everybody had contributed all the good ideas, and now they were just sort of nitpicking little ideas like, oh, okay, well, this this platform's six inches off the ground. Let's put a railing around it so people don't fall off, you know, things like that. Um, so I've really worked very hard at jumpstarting that by just trying to catch people in the act of being creative at work, right? They, they don't think about it much, but every once in a while they'll make a comment, right? Oh well, man, wouldn't it make it would make a lot more sense if we had this here? You know? Yeah, write that down and put it in the bin. Really? I go. Yeah, but that that'll cost a lot of money. I'm like, but it'll save a lot of money in the long run. I said if you put it on paper and you get it in front of the management's eyes, and now that you've explained it to me, I can kind of explain it to them and plead your case. It could make a big improvement. Hmm. And so, you know, for the ten years that I've worked there, the you know, almost nothing changed in the first six. And since I've taken over, if you were to walk in, it, you wouldn't recognize the place. That's how much has happened. How many things, shelves have moved, presses have been bought, <laughs> things have been torn down, things have been built. Everything is everything. There's not almost no place in there that that is the same as it was. Because you're just trying to catch people who do it on a daily basis. These people have the 10,000 hours of experience, right? They are the masters, yes. the people at the bottom level. But just because they've done that doesn't mean that, you know, has it become automated? Sure, for some of them. But no matter how automated the process is, they are still humans who are capable of creative thought. And every once in a while, they go, you know what would make this so much easier? And you have to be willing to listen to those people There's and giving the them point. a platform you to just make said, changes. You have to be because because... The general assumption, because of past practice and current practice in many places, is uh, shut up and do your work. While there may be a veneer of, oh, but show us how we're being innovative, or or tell us the five good things, or the, or the SWOT analysis. Hmm. The, 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 when you start out with the notion of you're going to have threats, <laughs> yeah, to me it, it, it sort of diminishes the 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 possibility of open free creativity but but yeah if if you tell people who work for you and not just tell them but by um, repetition which may be automatic but but no it's not automatic unless you're saying okay i'm just going to listen to every single person today all day um that's just a rule well okay maybe you can but maybe you don't have the opportunity to so you're having to be intentional in catching ideas and saying put it in the bin put it in the bin and then they have to see the things are coming out of the bin right and, yeah and all of that is not automatable <laughs> no no because sometimes you do have to go back to people and explain to them why their ideas aren't getting implemented right if you just don't implement it and don't say anything to anybody then they mm -hmm. they'll be a little bit resentful but if they understand the reason why something doesn't get done they're more likely to contribute in the future but um so you know, yeah, we've these four ideas. We just talked about how 
you know, automation in some ways is it's paradoxical, right? Because in some ways the autom automation is stripping away your humanity, but in, in part it's what allows us to be human, right? If we didn't have the brain power to automate these processes in order to focus on higher level things, then we may not have been able to evolve to a, a place where we could consider these higher level things. So automation, it, it's, it, it's kind of, it's a two-edged sword, right? There are things that are good and bad about it and, and how it's employed and how it can be hijacked, you know, specifically by technology in, in, in recent times is, is very interesting. So how does the reality of this cognitive automation affect our discussions of free will? Man, you always okay. There's a philosopher named Adrian Brocklus, and, and Brocklus, um, again, in a relatively recent article, um, was saying that you don't, you can't start from the, even the, the notion of saying that a, a machine thinks. An artificial intelligence is not thinking because you have to have experience in order to think. And a machine is never going to have experience because it, it has no context. It's not even a brain in, well, it's kind of, maybe it's a brain in a vat, but you, you can't have experience. In, and we, we could argue about all those things, but, but just running with that. So, um, artificial intelligence is not going to have free will, uh, along Along those lines, um, and I and I really like the the way that he he presents this, and he and there have been a couple of people recently who've been saying things like this. He's not the only one that that if you go from the premise that thinking is a strictly human or organic of uh, whales, you know, if, if thinking is an organic thing that requires an immersion in an environment in order to uh, make choices. And there are lots of things that we, we, we get to. Then, then there is no possibility of an AI d d um, acting with free will. Yeah. Because it cannot escape the algorithm. Because you can make the, the system more, it's talking about like a, a railroad. A, a railroad set, and you have a kid. If you get a railroad set, and as you get older, if you stay with it, you're just making it more complex and more complex and more complex. And maybe the train goes faster, but is that train thinking? No, you've built the system, and and so if you try to measure thinking by speed, or or by complexity, you're you, you, all you got to do is look at the train and say, nope, no, nope, okay, so that's not thinking. Mm. And we often seem to default to that. You know, well, look how fast the computers can, and on all the sheer data that they can process. And, and therefore, because it's so complex, it must be like our brain. No. Uh, and, and so, first, I would assert that, that it, under those circumstances, it's possible that AI isn't going to have free will. What about, what about humanity, right? Like, so in, in the intro, I said up to 95% of our, our thought processes are subconscious. So if if nineteen out of twenty <laughs> percent of our brain power is is outside of our control, what does that say about the free will that we have? Right? It's sort of like 
you know, people think of Elon Musk as being Tesla or being SpaceX, right? Right, right? But if you think about it, Elon Musk probably has less than 5% of control over what happens in the company, right? He's, he's the executive function. He's the prefrontal cortex of the company, right? Saying we should do this or we should go that and trying to divert resources that way. But really, that can wreck the company, as we've seen with Twitter. Right. <laughs> but the majority of, of the work that's being done is at a level that he doesn't have control over necessarily. Well, we, the, the idea of control is so interesting because you, you, all you have to do is take any, any single experience you might have had in a given week and, and looking, look at it honestly and say, what was I really in control of in that situation? I I'm, I might be able to, yes, control what I choose to say to somebody about something. But in a classroom, you, you, one struggles always to keep in mind that by saying one thing, you could turn a student off, you could shunt them away from an interest that they, that they, they might have had. It's tremendous responsibility, but it's, all, but it's a, but it's a free will. I, I think that it's, it's not, the number, the, how, the percentage of what we can do that isn't subconsciously or unconsciously automated, that's not really the thing. If it's 5%, it's 5%. But that 5% is, is what's defining us to each other and to ourselves. And that's a, 5% of your day, that's... That's a chunk of day that things can go wrong and you could really do harm. <laughs> yeah, I think this whole idea sort of, uh, it really sort of casts this idea of free will in a different light, right? Because yeah. when you start thinking about that 95% and you go, well, do you have free will over your heart rate? Yeah, I was do you just have, thinking that. Do, do I want to have, have free will over my heart rate? Do no. you have free will over, <laughs> over the, you know, the, the speed that your hair is growing at or your nails are growing? And you go, well, no. And you go, well, well, these are essential functions, right? Your heart beating is an essential function that keeps you alive. So if you don't have control over that, how mm -hmm. much control do you have? How much of your body, right? And we've talked about in the past how, sure. you know, there's, there's even a, a possibility that by weight, you are more, um, you know, uh, microbes than you are person. So are you actually a person or are you just a collection of microbes really? You know? So free will becomes very difficult because that 5%, you have, you have to ask, well, what is, what's important? Is it that 5% or is it the whole thing? And I think if you say it's the whole thing, that opens up a Pandora's jar, right? <laughs> of, nice, of issues nice. regarding, you know, philosophically, what it means to be human. Right? I could not do that 5% of being human if the 95% I'm, I'm taking that, that percentage with a grain of salt, but I'm just, you know, yeah. it, it, is if the heart's not beating, we're not operating. If we're not breathing, we're not operating. If if we're not eating, we're not, and, and so on and so on and so on. So we we have to have all those microbes we have to have the, the, the billion life forms within us in order to be human, which means we have to be, it takes a village. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we are a collective, all those terrible words, right? <laughs> that, that, uh, and a, we are a collective 
individually. <laughs> yeah. And so, and we've talked about ways that these things can be manipulated. Otherwise, you know, if you, you know, uh, behaviorism, right, of the, the 20th century there. If you were to starve us to 70% of our body weight, right, we would start acting in ways that we, that we couldn't control, right? And things that we normally think of as being things we can control, you know, our, our reactions to situations or that, that type of thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, even under ideal circumstances, you know, even if I have had a good night's sleep and I'm well fed and, and that sort of thing, you can put me in a situation where I might feel fear outside of my control and that might raise my blood pressure and cause me to sweat and do all of these different things that i i don't have control over yeah so you know this idea of this you know where how much i think this would be a more interesting question right rather than thinking how much of our processes are automated it'd be what percentage of us is an automaton (laughs) i think (laughs) it's sort of a different way of thinking about it but you know if you it's sort of like a cyborg, you know, instead of looking at a cyborg as physically being made up of human and robot parts, it's sort of like the equivalent of that on a on an intellectual level, right? How many of these pieces are automaton and how many of these pieces are humanity, you mm-hmm. know, and you go, oh, that's well, Elon Musk says we're all cyborgs. Hmm. Uh, so what? <laughs> but 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 I, I think his point in 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 saying that was discussing uh, the constant interaction with social media. That without without now there are people who don't have cell phones. There are people who refuse to go online, um, and that cuts them off from certain things. They want to people want to be able to pay their bills the old fashioned way, and there's some companies still letting that happen. But more and more companies are saying nope. You know, so it's forcing you to absorb part of the machinery and thus become uh, metaphorically a cyborg. Mm. But yeah, I, I think it's the idea. Well, that takes us back to what you just described. Takes us back to in- intentionality. So I realize I, I, I sat here talking with you, and. I, at some moment in this conversation, made myself think, what are you doing with your body? And immediately my foot stops. Yeah. Because my foot was going to wiggle, 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 wiggle. Why is it doing that? We, we look at little kids all the time. My granddaughter got this wonderful face painting at a, at a festival yesterday. It was sweet. She loved it. And then she, she, Put her hands up to her uh, uh, armpits, and she started wiggling her her arms like wings, like chicken wings. Which is, a, you know, a, I know a chicken is an old song, and and we sing it a lot to her. And and but suddenly, she, the the mask had nothing to do with the chicken. Suddenly, her body was well, and we can accept that little kids. But then we said, well, we have to be disciplined. Really? Look at any one of us at any given moment. How gawky and strange are we? What are our What are our fingers doing? What are our feet doing? Yeah. Uh, and, and and but we can become aware of that, and then we can control it. That's got to be free will. I just told myself to stop wiggling my foot. Now, this is not a world-shattering thing. (laughs) It's not a great philosophical discovery, but it exists. And on some levels, it is an incredible 
phenomenon, right? Because here you and I are talking and I'm not thinking about how to move my vocal cords or how to shape my lips to make words. As a matter of fact, I was reading uh, an interesting, well, I was listening to an audiobook by David Myers um, talking about psychological um, findings that people think are interesting. Hmm. And um, one of them was this cognitive automation thing, which spurred the, you know, the, it was the impetus for this episode. And uh, the example that he used was, if you ask people how to make a right hand turn in a car, almost all of them will get it wrong, <laughs> which is, you know, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I turn the wheel right and then I straighten the wheel. But if you do that, you'll go off the road. You have to turn the wheel right, then you have to turn it the same amount left afterwards, then straighten it. <laughs> but people don't know no. how to do that, yeah. but they still do it automatically, right? So this automatic part of us, um, you know, I think the, 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 the idea of trying to discuss whether or not there's humanity there mm -hmm. is one discussion. But I think that the other part of it is what you're, what you're coming to, which is that when we do think about it and when we do identify it, that is what we think of as being free will. And I think out of the four characteristics we were looking at, right? Awareness, intentionality, intentionality. E efficiency, and controllability. Yeah. I think it's really those three, awareness, intentionality, and controllability, right? And there's a really important discussion to be had there that we've, we've touched on before about how technology can hijack those systems, right? Mm -hmm. And I've experienced that some, you know, you and I were talking a few months back that I finished up my semester of school and I realized that during that semester, I was just struggling to read, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, you know, sure, it's it's a doctoral level. So the, the textbooks are very, you know, complex and, and dry and these sorts of things. But still, I found myself just, you know, not being able to to read the words. And uh, I had to I started taking, you know, on an app, doing some some exercises that are meant to strengthen the processes that go into reading. What you realize is you don't know how many things go into reading. You know, your peripheral vision plays this huge part. Your ability to decode words and, and your speed on relating things to prior knowledge, all of this plays in. But your your ability to to pay attention, right? To not have your attention hijacked and and to to be intentional about what you're doing and, you know, and to be able to control that process, it plays a, a big part in, in executing it. And what more and more research is demonstrating is that phones kind of take that away from you, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you, it can be uncontrollable. And I'm seeing this in, in my job, right? We, we struggle with people using their phones and it's, we don't want to take them away completely because people like listening to their music while they work. They like listening to their podcasts. They like, if there's an emergency, they like having them close on hand. There's, there's, there's good reasons to let people have them. But what we find is that they neglect, um, safety measures. They neglect their, their job duties. They neglect a lot of other things if they have access to them. Same thing happens to students. Right. And so, <laughs> and it doesn't matter how much you you warn them or how much you punish them they they can't stop doing it and i think that that's because it's become an automated behavior There's, it's become a habit yes. right right and so 
what effect does this automation have on philosophical areas like ethics or epistemology or ontology, right? We've been talking about the ontology a little bit. We have. But with ethics and epistemology, do you think that they can be affected by ways that we automate our cognitive processes? I think epistemologically, that's already there. There, are, I think the discussions are well underway with with that. How do you take a question like this? How how do you know that my phone is causing me to to not work as efficiently? <laughs> right. Uh, as as one question somebody might ask of a human resources officer. <laughs> Well, I see you documentably uh, looking at your phone uh, 17 minutes uh, out of every hour. How did you do that? Well, you were on camera. Oh, well, that's unethical. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but no, perhaps it's not because you're trying to monitor the workplace and make it safer. So how do we know how these things are affecting us is very much an epistemological question tied into the specificity of the social media tools, the hardware that we're using. How do we, how do we know that people are bullying other people, uh, young people particularly, and, and driving them towards suicide? Well, we can see what's being said, and we, and, and we have a crude knowledge about what puts people in mental states of, 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 of self-derision and, and so on. And so we can epistemologically say, look, it's pretty clear that X, Y, and Z, again, uh, because this is happening here, we can connect this. But we still haven't been able to connect the idea, though, though people are desperate to just say it because they want to say it because it sounds good, that video games cause people to, to become violent. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because this goes back to what we were saying about experience, right? And it, it almost raises the question, what is an experience? Oh, it does raise the question, <laughs> which, what's an experience? Which we can talk about in another episode. <laughs> but um, because when, when we're thinking about some of this, um, I think it, our personal epistemologies, how we come to know something is based off of, off of these experiences. And as we gain experiences, we begin to autom you know, automate our cognitive processes towards them so that we know what to expect. Well, the source of information is very important there, right? And so experiencing something um, such as uh, Ill illegal immigration being bad, right? Well, if you, let's say you've, you've worked with uh, immigrants who were hardworking people who were were nice and decent and were generous in these sorts of things, then that is going to give you different information that informs how you approach this topic. Whereas if you get all of your, the experience that's informing your epistemology is all things that are being said on a screen that you're reading, mm -hmm. um, your brain's not going to know to separate that from first-hand experience, right? No, it, so you, it won't. And it may flock to it. Can a brain flock? <laughs> There's a, okay, no, it, may, it, it, it may move to it because it's self-confirming. I want to believe this, therefore. 
this just told me, and so therefore it must be. Right. The experiences, Bad, quotes, logic. that I've had in the past yeah. confirm this new piece of information. And I might not have had any experiences at all in the right. past. I may have only encountered – next week, let's talk about experience. Okay. I, I really yeah. think that – Yeah, I think that uh, would be a good one. Um, See, that was good. <laughs> but but what's what we don't we we don't experience we hear well hearing is an experience but we don't have the first hand thing and so then we that that goes all kinds of places because you can't have first hand experiences of everything mm. either there's limitation of means time and all all the rest but it can be automated the 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 wrong or destructive or harmful behaviors can be automated. The responses can be automated and therefore the behaviors can be automated. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this idea of autom automation and how it affects epistemologies bleeds over to, to ethics as well, because one of um, the, one of the categories of cognitive automation is stereotyping. Right. Mm -hmm. And so stereotype, it's not something that you, you consciously think about, right? You don't, it, not a lot of people go in thinking like, oh, well, I'm just going to be biased against these groups, right? Mm -hmm. No, it's something that, that pops up due to prior experiences and, and other things that, that have informed it, but that are, you, you don't have control over. And so that can, can affect ethics when you look at a systemic level and you see that suddenly there are groups that are being treated much worse or much better based yes. upon the the sort of implicit stereotypes and biases that people have that have been cognitively automated because of which groups they've had more experience with and which media how the media has been treating certain groups and things, what the information experiences that it yes, represents. Yes, the the automatic response one. How many times do we hear somebody say, and you you know, almost as soon as they're saying it, it it's confirming something they don't want to confirm. I'm not racist, but mm. I'm not prejudiced about anybody, but <laughs> and so they're at once denying and admitting, right. <laughs> Uh, which is a collision. <laughs> the gears are going, <laughs> and somehow the internal system has to say, "No, just just believe the first part. Just believe the first part, and that way the gears will work." Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, uh, you and I talked about a few weeks back. We were talking about um, a controversial um, personality, mm -hmm. and you know somebody who has has alighted on some good points in the past, but also has had this sort of troubling history and, and trying to get to the bottom of whether there's an intentional, um, whether this person was doing something intentionally wrong or whether they were doing something, they were trying to do the right thing, but they were unintentionally hurting somebody, right? And we discussed it for quite a while. And, and what I ended up sort of informing my opinion some was the language that was being used after reading and, and listening to much of what this person had to say, the thing that, that tipped me off was there's a lot of language that uses always and never. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's what follows a lot of those things that you just said. If somebody says, I'm not a racist, but usually the next thing that comes out is something that is 
very not qualified in any way, right? It's a concrete. I'm not racist, but these people always act this way, right, or these right. people never do this, yeah. right? And and there was a separate quote that I heard this week, and I wish I could remember the specifics of it because it was great. But they said, um, I think it was, I think it's the book that I'm reading, um, done by. Uh, Hertog, Stephen Hawking's um, partner on the last oh, um, yeah. the last theory he came up with, but he was talking about Newton and Einstein, I believe, and how when each, or maybe it was Einstein and Hawking, one of one of the two pairs, right? Regardless, you have two of the minds that have changed physics as we know it completely. And he said, what were the two things that these guys had in common when they were making their statements? Is that they both start with it seems as if, right? Which is the opposite of that, right? To say it cool. seems as if demonstrates that somebody is aware of their position. They're in being intentional about their language. Yeah, they're in control. Language. They're in control, but they're using tentative language. Right. They're not. They're not speaking in absolutes. Yeah, and so I think that when it comes to cognitive automation right i think that what's important is that we don't try to or more specifically we have to actively try not to automate processes that are involved in critical thinking about important topics right when mm-hmm. and identifying what those important topics are can be difficult sometimes but i think if you find yourself in a situation where it's you know something you know, if it's something more important than driving, right? <laughs> driving is pretty important, but, you know, talking about an entire race of people or talking about physics or philosophy or, or talking about any number of things is even more important than driving. You should really stop and think about what you're saying ahead of time. And you should probably start your next sentence with, it seems as if instead of always or never. Yep. And that's yep. a good place to start. Maybe so. so. <laughs> <laughs> So until next time, keep on. Doing it.